0: Okay, we're in Romans chapter 12. We have a, we have a change here. It's kind of interesting how books are written sometime, but sometimes. But um, you know what? I forgot to get a bottle of water. Can somebody grab me a bottle of water out of the... Okay, thanks, Pastor. <clears throat> but uh, first 11 chapters, we are in the doctrinal section. And it's kind of interesting when you get the writers, you know, on these books and, and especially in the, the reform world, uh, many of the writers think that chapter 12 and on doesn't really quite belong with the book of Romans because it was such a doctrinal book for 11 chapters and it changes to a practical. But I think the reality is, at least what I would uh, personally believe, is that theology is always... Uh, practical. Because theology is an instruction for us uh, on how to live our lives, and then the practical outline of that is we then would, would expand that with instruction on how to live that uh, in, our, in our personal lives day to day. And that's what, that's what Paul does here. He's got the 11 chapters of, uh, of doctrine, and the whole gospel, the overriding theme, we said of the book is the gospel. <clears throat> but we have the uh, 11 chapters of doctrine, and now, in chapter 12, he, uh, he starts giving us and laying out, how do we live that out in our lives? And uh, there's two real huge verses that we'll look at in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll uh, go on from there. But we're going to finish up a few things in the end of chapter 11. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you uh, for this time together. We thank you, Lord, for the day you give us uh, to be able to gather together as a fellowship of believers in the house of God and that we can fellowship with uh, family members, the spiritual family members that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. We ask you to meet with us. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, give us understanding, give us clarity. And Father, this would be a time not only as a family to gather and study, but to carry it out in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we kind of rushed through the very end of chapter 11. So we'll go back and just touch on that a little bit. Verses uh, 25, actually we'll start in verse uh, 24. And Paul writes here and he says uh, in verse 24, If you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So he's presenting a thing here where we as Gentiles are what would be the wild olive tree, the wild olive branches. That's Gentiles. We are outside the covenant that, uh, that was made with Israel. But, what he's, what he's showing here is that those branches, as he cut off the branches on the olive tree, the Jewish people who were not uh, covenant-keeping people, they were contrary to God. As those were cut off, he grafts in the wild branches, which would be Gentiles. And we know that's true. He said in chapter 10, there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. same Lord overall is rich on all who call upon him. So we're in a different framework here in the church where the Gentiles have been grafted in, so we enjoy the same covenant as the Jewish people, which the new covenant is in the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have that privilege, and he's making sure the Gentiles here at at Rome know that that's a privilege. Now the neat thing about it is if in uh, the wild... You tried to do what's unnatural, and you tried to draft a, a wild uh, uh, in the world. I should have said, a "Wild olive branch into a, 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 a cultivated uh, olive tree that is used for food, for oil, and as well as uh, for the, the the meat of the uh, olive for food." If you did that, uh, when you came the next year and picked fruit off that wild olive branch, it would. It would still taste like a wild olive branch. And he's saying that what's been done here is contrary to nature because you as Gentiles have been grafted in, and you know what? We all enjoy the same fruit. We all enjoy the same uh, uh, blessings of the new covenant. That's contrary to nature, he's saying. And that should really give us a real sense of joy and fulfillment that God would do this for us, and then He goes on. And he says, "Lest you be wise in your own sight, do not do not want. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come both upon Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So this partial hardening, uh, it's in the past present, uh, tense. I think it's a past present uh, perfect because." In the past, Israel has been hardened. We saw that throughout the Old Testament. But now they're still being hardened. They're still under the hardening of God. Why? Because they hardened their own hearts, so then God hardened their hearts. And he's saying this hardening is going to continue until the fullness uh, of time. Now, the fullness of the Gentiles, in Luke twenty-one twenty-four uh, b Jesus says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What's that? Well, as God has determined, or predetermined, as we've been teaching, the number of Gentiles to be saved. Once that number has been complete, we don't know when that is. Uh, you know, we, we believe that we look around the world and we see things going on that we think, okay, this looks like end times. Well, it's been end times since the church was established. The whole time of the Gentiles for over 2,000 years has been end times. We don't know for sure. Now it sure looks, and I think every generation of Christians looked at something and said, well, this looks like this could be it. Well, it won't be done until a predetermined time of God when the last Gentile is saved, and then God will rapture his church, and we'll see the change coming. And when that happens, we're going to see those branches that were broken off and trimmed off that olive tree because of unbelief, we're going to start to see those grafted back on. We won't be here, so I shouldn't say we'll see. But they will. They'll start to be grafted on. And what we'll see, or what will happen at that time, is in verse 26, it says, And in this way all Israel will be saved. Now, uh, you know, there's a lot of writing about that too. And if you're if you're in a, a, a Reform church, you believe that, uh, replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. So we, the church, are now the covenant people of Israel, or, or of God, and we are all Israel. And we saw in Galatians where Paul used that term, and we explained that at the time. I'm not going to go back to that uh, for time's sake. But here, I think, I think what we're seeing here is just as there's a remnant of Jews being saved today in the times of the Gentiles, In the tribulation time, we'll see vast numbers of Jews saved. Uh, 70th week of Daniel, where now God goes back to his covenant people, Israel, and he is going to save Israel. Does that mean that every Israelite will be saved? No, I don't believe that. But it will mean that at the end of the tribulation, and we know there's 144,000 Jews that that God has set aside and protected 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes to be missionaries, if you will, uh, during that time, and he protects them and preserves them during the tribulation when we'd see Christians getting killed, and anybody that rebels against the Antichrist would be, would be uh, up for destruction, but God will preserve a vast number of Jewish people that will enter into the millennial kingdom. I believe that's what uh, he is getting at there at the end of chapter 11. And then he goes on, he closes that out. He says, for God has consigned, verse uh, 32, all to disobedience, that's Jew and Gentile, that he may have mercy on all. And God's mercy is established, and we know that even in this day, uh, we see God's mercy, and the, the, the old saying, you know, uh, uh, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust the same. God does bless all Jews and Gentiles in this dispensation, saved or unsaved, they receive uh, they see, receive general blessing, but specific blessings, as we're going to see going forward here now, are reserved for God's people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's twelve thousand of each of the twelve tribes. God sets them aside as. I would call them Jewish missionaries in the tribulation. Yeah. It's a it's a miraculous thing. It's it's not something that our natural intellect can really understand. You just kind of shake your head. But that's that's what faith is all about. We take it by faith because God has said it. And Pastor will get into that when he gets into the book of Revelation. Okay, so we go to chapter 12. Now yeah, Ben. The gentiles. Yeah, you when it reaches that number. Do you have a verse for that? No, I, I would just with uh, what, uh, what he has here. He said when the fullness of time comes the fullness of the gentiles has come in in verse uh, uh, 25 the last part of verse 25. And we, we look at that earlier, there's a fullness of time that's going to come. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's going to be when a specific, when he is is done with this dispensation, when the end comes, and I believe the fullness of time there is, because this is the time of the Gentiles, and when that reaches full, you think of a cup, when the cup is full, when that time comes, then God's going to end this dispensation and the rapture will take place. I believe it's a predetermined number of Gentiles that will be saved. Why? Because of election. That's, how God, has, that's God, how God has worked throughout the ages, Old Testament and New, is a process of election. And it's always a remnant. It's a small number. So, chapter 12. He says here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to spend some time in those two verses, because they really set up the whole rest of the book. And he says, I'm going to quote it in the King James, I guess without looking. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you may prove it as that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, when I read it here, I'll be reading in the ESV, which a lot of you would have, Uh, but the whole thing here is that there's an appeal being made, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore. I beseech you, therefore. And it's it's interesting because the terms he uses there, he doesn't say, I command you. Now, if we are under the law... I think that's what it would say, as I command you. There's an order given. We see here, we talk about the free will of man. That's how it's exercised. What Paul is doing there, he's going to a church, he says, I beseech or I appeal to you, please, that you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. So we're going to go through this a little bit, kind of word for word. And... What we have in this verse is, I beseech your appeal. It's not a command as the law would have. Throughout this section, we can see the free will of man granted us as Christians. But the issue, and we go back to one of the first lessons we had of faith and obedience, how that intersects and works together. The issue of faith and obedience is very real, and Christians produce real uh, real fruit. That's the whole idea. Christians produce real real fruit. Now we have a free will. The the key to a free will as a Christian is how do you use it? How do you use it? We could as a Christian say, you know what, I'm just sick of all this stuff and I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to quit going to church. I'm just going to do what I want to do and enjoy it because I'm saved and going to heaven. Well, that's, that's not producing fruit. Think of the olive tree again. We're grafted in. You're grafted in. You can't lose your salvation. But I think we see a proof text here that there are some people who claim to be saved and then suddenly they disappear and you don't see them anymore. It's probably because they're never really saved. Now, we can't judge that. God only can judge the heart and the inner man. We can't judge that. But we can see by the outworking of men. So it's a proof text here that, you, that, that, that he is appealing to these people. Yes, exercise your free will, but be careful how you use it. Do it in the right way, and, and we'll see instruction on that coming up. And then he goes on, he says, the mercies of God. So what are the mercies of God? When we think of mercy, what do we think of? Any parents here should uh, have a... Something that's undeserved. Okay, something that's undeserved. Mike. Right. Yes, now, don't forget chapter 5, the overwhelming grace of God that brings salvation to us, but you are correct. The mercy of God is on the opposite end of that. He withholds what we rightly deserve. It's just like our children. You, you have a child that does something you had told him not to do, and then you say, okay, we're, we're just going to forget about it this time, but don't you do that again. You're extending mercy by withholding punishment. And that's what he's saying here. He's appealing to these Gentile believers, primarily Gentile believers, that you do what? You you, you do what you, you ought to do by your free will. Why? Because God has withheld the punishment you deserve. You know, the Gentiles and how they are viewed, you were outcasts of society. God chose to graft you in. Yes, they responded to the gospel, but God chose to have them because he sent Paul to the Gentiles, which was contrary. That's why he, he suffered so much uh, uh, criticism as a, as a false apostle, not a real apostle. Why? Because he went to the Gentiles, and that was his ministry. And God withheld his, his, your rightful judgment. He granted you mercy to do what? To present your bodies a living sacrifice. What does it mean to present? To present. It's an act of, con- uh, of uh, consecration. It's declaring something that is sacred. Our body includes what? Soul and spirit. That's how uh, the spirit of God is housed in us. Temples. First Corinthians six nineteen. The, the we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, spirit of God. And First Corinthians six nineteen tells us you don't own your own body. It's now owned by another. We have a responsibility then to preserve that because God is merciful in saving us. It's not. It's very reasonable for us then that we would present our bodies, we would consecrate our bodies, we would declare them as sacred, not to us, but to God. God created us. And how do we manifest that? We manifest that through what we do, through our body, how we look, uh, our hands, our feet. What do we do with our hands? Where do we go with our feet? Uh, what do we do with our mouth? What do we say? Those things that proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. So our minds, everything, uh, should be consecrated to God in what we say, how we live, where we go, the things we do. And that's what Paul's saying here. And he goes on, he says, you're a living sacrifice. Now, why would he say a living sacrifice? What would be the what would be the uh, past custom for sacrifices? Huh? They're dead. They're dead. They're animals. They were sacrificed. They're dead sacrifices. Now he's he's appealing to man to be a living sacrifice. Under the old covenant, they are dead. He died, but here Jesus died that we might live. So the 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 death, the the, the sacrificial system of the Jews through the Old Testament, has been finalized in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, how do you do this? One, holy. or set apart to, to, to something or somebody. In this case we are set apart to God. We're to be holy and set apart to God. We're to be acceptable. We're to be well-pleasing. And uh, the, the question is, do we exhibit this the way we should, but we should be we should be in the process, we should be appealing in such a way that we would be uh, pleasing to a holy God. He'd, he'd be excited. Hopefully God is excited about us being here this morning. God brought us here, but as we are here, we are here to, to study the word, to receive the word, to fellowship other Christians, Christians that we would be... Uh, We would be, as we'll see later, we would be very sensitive to uh, uh, other people's needs, not our our own, but other people's needs. We'll see that in a little bit. But these are things that would be pleasing to God. We need to be pleasing to God. Hopefully we're here today and we're pleasing to God. We're not just kind of lump on the log and kind of bitter about something and, uh, and not pleasing. Then the other thing it says is it's reasonable. It's your spiritual worship or it's your reasonable service. Either one would fit there. Reasonable, logical, spiritual. First Corinthians 6.19 again. We are not our own. We are redeemed with a price. Jesus paid the price to do what? What does redemption mean? To be what? To, be, to redeem something, you're doing what? Buying it back. You're buying it back. You're buying it back. Hosea, we went through Hosea, remember that? And Hosea went out, and his wife, a prostitute, she was was older now, she was just kind of the dregs of society, and he went to the marketplace and did what? He bought her back and restored her to be his full, uh, uh, to be granted all the privileges of being his wife and the mother of their children. That was the picture That was a picture that God will ultimately redeem his people. Even though they're the dregs of society, they will be bought back. Even though they hate God, they will be bought back. And here it's the same thing as Christians. We are bought out of a slave market. We are slaves to the world, to the things of this earth. And God buys us back. He redeems us from that. That should really mean something to us. It should change our lives. And then in verse 2 he says don't be conformed. If you're truly saved, then we need to act like it. Don't masquerade or act like a part of the world. If you're truly saved, we need to act like we're saved. Not just in church but uh, as we're out in the world. And how do we do that? It says we're transformed. Uh, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're transformed. That's progressive sanctification Our life should be proof text that we are saved and it should be more of a proof text today than it was when we were first saved. Some would say year by year. But the reality is it should be a transformation that's taking place. How? By renewal. Actions follow submission. What do we submit to? The Word of God. That is, at least to me, that is... The, one of the hardest things, I think, for, for people to do. I was going to say men, but I mean anybody. Because we are so independent, I think especially as Americans, we're so independent, and we kind of have our own idea of what our life should be and how it should look and how we should act and what we, we can do what we want to do. We have, in most cases, the finances to do it. Matter of fact, uh, do too much with our finances, and you know what? He wants us to submit to the Word of God. He wants to re- renew our minds so the transformation can take place as we submit to the Word of God. And then it says, it, it, it ends it by, uh, by testing, you may be dis- dis- discern what is the will of God, the end of verse 2. Discerning the will of God, the will of God. There's three things it says there. Good. The will of God is always good, but sometimes it's hard. Uh, I think we've all been there. Acceptable. It's acceptable only as we submit. Because if we read something in the Word of God and say, well, I'm not doing that. I, I have my own life I'm going to do over here. Well, then maybe you're not saved. It's acceptable. We want to submit to it. It's a, it's a matter of the will. Our will com- coming into a, a confirmation of God's will. It's perfect. We can't always see that because we, we don't always know where it's headed, but God's will is perfect. In chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says that Israel did not submit to God's righteousness, and that's why they became the outcasts. They, they were set aside. They had 400 years of no communication from God. Then the Messiah comes and communicates. They reject him, and they kill him. They crucify him, and God sets them aside, and he turns to the Gentiles. Israel did not submit to the righteousness of God. We need to do that. So in summary of verses 1 and 2, the encapsulated uh, gospel here, I think, is imperative. One, it's a basis of holy living. God gives us revelation. It's a method of holy living. We are to be consecrated unto God. We're to be set aside unto God and to his use. The result of holy living should be a transformation. So the question for us is this, do we see ourselves here? Do we see ourselves in these first two verses that are so crucial for understanding the rest of this chapter and beyond? Do we own this? Do we take ownership of what God has for us, his revelation, the consecration, the transformation? Do we we take ownership in that? Do we desire this for our life? So then we go on to verses 3 through 8, and we see here uh, the humility and service that God says should be a result of these first two verses. So everything else here kind of spawns off of those first two verses in chapter 12. Any thoughts there while I take a drink? We'll have Dan first. He, he, He raised his hand, okay? I saw that. And then I'll get you, John. Yeah. Yeah. He's talking about Peter, and of course he was uh, an apostle to the to the Jews, and how hard that was for him, and and thinking he was going to die, and he ultimately did, but uh, he he chose to live and and, and uh, submit to God's will, John. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So is, so is God is, is this is kind of very touching. Is God still punishing Israel? Because the whole world must have still even annihilated? Well, that that's the part that is uh is sometimes tough for us to understand. Yes, he is, because they are outside right now, they can get saved. Those who and we see Jews getting saved, but it's a remnant. It's a remnant, and that's that's what we that's what Paul was uh, or Paul was teaching in the first eleven chapters. It's a remnant of Israel that's saved. They are still being hardened. That's why Paul said that back in chapter eleven. We just read the hardening was. It's a past tense, but I think it's a past perfect. That it's in the past. They've been hardened. They're still being hardened. He says until the fulfillment of the fullness of the Gentiles, the time of Gentiles. Now, at the same time, is his covenant with Abraham still in effect? Yes. And I would not want to be the people right now that are going against Israel. Uh, God allows that. The Israel's suffer from it. But you know what? They're not going to defeat and annihilate. And we know that on a world basis, the goal of the Antichrist is going to be to annihilate them. And the goal of Satan, the deceiver today, is to annihilate Israel. I think partly because he feels if I annihilate Israel, then God, then, then God isn't going to do anything more. And uh, so it's, it, it's a tough one, but yes, he is. He's, there's, still, there's still a condemnation, a hardening that's taking place of Israel, but that's going to turn around. And the nations who are fighting Israel today, I, I would not want to be in their shoes. I think we're already seeing some of that. Yes, Flora. I'm kind of confused as far as Gentiles and Israel. I thought it was all Israel, all one. But It seems like there's a separation. Um, yes. Um, we are in the church age. We're under the new covenant of Jesus Christ and his blood. The Jews of the nation rejected that. But there's always a remnant that's getting saved. And that's why he said in chapter 10, there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. Same Lord over all is rich unto all. But there, there's still a difference, there's still a, a separation between Gentile and Jew. Because God's ultimate covenant fulfillment is going to come after the church is raptured out of here, and it's going to return to Israel. So there's a difference between the Gentile and the Jew, Yes. But in this dispensation, we all get saved the same way. We all live under the same covenant. If we had a Jewish uh, family come into church here, we should receive them and receive them with honor. Yes, Pastor, please. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Okay, let's see if we can get through this uh, next portion. So in 12, uh, 3 through 8, we see here the issue of humility and service. And Paul's ministry was a grace gift. We, we're going to see that and read it in a minute, but let me make the statement first. Paul's ministry was a grace gift. And Paul is asking us to assess our place what grace gifts have we been giving, for the purpose of serving in the church and pursuing the ministries that are appropriate and according with uh, they say with our faith? Paul says here, and that's a that's that's something that's for every one of us, but we need to do it in the proper manner, and that's using sound judgment and understanding that when he says faith here, we're talking about a faith stewardship. Are we we being faithful stewards of the gifts that God has given us and how they're used? And I think it's always used within the context of the church. That's God's program. That's God's institution for this dispensation. So let's see what he says here. He starts with the word for. Remember, for always is an explanation of what he's just given. So now we're going to see what he just gave in two verses, expanded and expounded on. For, by, great, by, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of a faith that God has assigned. And that's what I just say in there. He, he understood his gift, his grace gift had been given to him as an apostle. He had a responsibility. When we're given a gift... It's like kind of like the, the, the parable of the talents. When we're given a gift, we have a responsibility to use that gift because it was something that God gave us. Now, most cases, I would say in most cases, we probably have other people identify what they see as an ability or gift in us and ask us to maybe to serve in an area. I think that's what usually happens. Uh, I never asked to teach adult Sunday school class. I was asked to teach adult Sunday school class. And I can go way back to the beginning of the church, or or when we came, uh, at least Margaret and I, 47 years ago, I wasn't prepared to do the things that I was asked to do, partly because of a limited number of people, but also what was perceived as an ability. That's pretty humbling, because I'll tell you what, it's not the easiest thing to get up in front of a group of people and try to teach through a book in the Bible. It's just not. But we have to identify what God has given us and choose to use it in the right way. Now, pride is not a gift. So if we're doing something out of pride because we think, okay, we're going to be, we're, we're the big God here, uh, that, that's not a gift, and that's not going to fly very fast. Uh, we have we've had four pastors here since I've been here, and we're we're just blessed with the quality of pastors we've had. But the one thing I've seen in every one of them is the matter of humility. And every every pastor I've seen, they're human beings, and they maybe an issue comes up that they just they just feel sick about why, because they're exercising humility and how they approach the gift that God's given them. So we go on to verses four and five, and it says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And the gifts and, the, and what he's talking about here is very simply that each church is a diverse group of people that God has brought together in unity. And you don't have to look very far in our church to see that. We are a very diverse group of people, and we have varied backgrounds, and yet God brings us together, and we have a responsibility now to be unified. And you know what? We need to be part of one another. There should never be an issue that becomes so great that we say, well, I'm just going to avoid that person or leave that person alone because I just, I just don't care for them. No, that should be a draw for us to go to them. Because we want to be unified in Christ. We don't want to, we're diverse in our abilities, we're diverse in our gifts, but we're united in Christ. It's like the body. And, uh, you know, if we get old enough, uh, uh, Wayne's hip gave out. Thank the Lord we can replace hips today. But his hip gave out. Part of his body gave out. That comes with age. I got arthritis in parts of my body that caused a lot of trouble. That comes with age. And we have the same thing in the church. Sometimes a little something will, will, will come up in the church. Well, it needs to be fixed because it's a spiritual issue now, not a physical issue. It's a spiritual issue. And we need to, we need to exercise that in our lives. As we go on through uh, verses 6 to 8, now we get into gifts that are mentioned. Now, we also see gifts mentioned in 1 and 2 Timothy, Ephesians chapter 4. Paul mentions gifts. Um, I think it's determined on what he sees the need is at the time of that writing and who he's writing to. In 1 Corinthians, we see in chapter 12 a whole list of gifts. And the problems in in Corinth cause that. But it allows us to kind of put these together, and we're not going to do that because we don't have time to do that. But we're going to look at the gifts that he lists here because he saw this need in the church at Rome. And here's here's some of the gifts. Gifts are are listed as deemed necessary to that individual church. And he says here prophecy. So we see uh, individually members of one another having gifts that differ to the grace given to us. Let us use them, verse 6, it says, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our, serving of, of, uh, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And these are a list of gifts that, that uh, are given to the church. Now, I think these are general enough that we should all be able to identify something in our life that fits in these gifts. But we're going to go through them real quickly here. Prophecy. Now there's a lot of difference of opinion on that word there, prophecy. And uh, I've used it before uh, as both foretelling and foretelling. And uh, there are some, if you read any commentaries on this, you're going to see some that say prophecy was an early gift to the church that is extinct, that's gone, because once the canon was complete, there was no need for it. I personally disagree with that. If that's your, what you hold as a thought, I don't, I don't see a problem with that. But prophecy here, yeah, I don't think, was a temporary gift to the church. I think it's a gift that's still there, but it's, it's, it's very narrow in its use. And what would that use be? Well, um, David Jeremiah uh, has uh, a saying on this where he says, prophecy is prescriptive in other words, it speaks to, uh, to the truth that is evident and needed in that day and that time. It's prescriptive. It's kind of like a, uh, if we need prescriptions, we go, to, we go to the pharmacy and we get a prescription. Why? Because we need it. Well, he's saying here prophecy is prescriptive and it's still for this day and age. Where is it limited to? It's probably limited in the area of pastoral preaching and teaching. Then prophecy also was predictive. That prophecy is definitely gone. The canon is complete. We're going to get into, uh, after Isaiah, and even in Isaiah we see a, a predictive prophecy. We're going to see it also in Revelation when pastor gets there. But it's, it's complete. So I don't see prophecy as predictive or foretelling today. I do see prophecy as, as uh, prescriptive in foretelling today. Uh, I'm not standing up here saying I'm a prophet, but teaching the word of God, I think, is part of that. I think it's primarily um, a, a thing with a pastor-teacher. The second one is service. Service is there for all of us. We all share in some degree to the, to the, to, uh, the matter of service, and we see a lot of service in our church the issue that we can always ask ourselves is, can we do more? Could we, could we do more? Could we have less time with some of our worldly things and more time in serving? I think we could probably all say yes. Here the word is, uh, di, diakono, diakono, which would be for the deacon, And that might be the primary emphasis here, I don't know, that may be more geared towards deacons. Deacons in the church are servants. They're there for the purpose of serving, and they're to serve any and all places in the church where it's needed, including some of the other things that we're going to see coming up here, uh, uh, the elderly, uh, those who are uh, um, uh, incapacitated in some way. Dwayne Swanson right now is in the nursing home in Pine Island, and I'm going to hike up there and see him here the first of the week. Why? Because he needs that. And when I talk to him, he very much welcomes that, uh, people to stop and see him. He has surgery coming up in a couple weeks, and then hopefully he'll be able to go back there for his recovery time. But we need to, we need to be about service and seeking for ways to serve. best thing to do is talk to the pastor. Teaching. Passing the gospel truth or the word of truth onto the people. That's what we're doing this morning. Hopefully, uh, the, the book of Romans, uh, I don't in any way despise it, but rather, I'm able to articulate at least in a manner that you can receive some blessing from the, from the book of Romans. Exhorting, encouraging the brethren. Those two are closely related, I think, because as we teach through a book here like the book of Romans, hopefully it's an encouragement. It should be a challenge. It should be a challenge to our lives, an introspection. Where do we fit in this? Are we doing the things that he's talking about here? But it should also be an encouragement because if you're not doing service, it should encourage you to do service. If you are doing service, it should be an encouragement, not a contentment, but an encouragement that you are serving. So it should work both ways. Contributing. Um, We don't like this one real well sometimes, the one who contributes in generosity. Uh, I think a primary way, and and Paul speaks of it over and over, spent uh, a couple chapters on it in Corinthians, is the issue of our responsibility to be generous with our giving. And that can be both service, but it also can be financial. Obviously, uh, we'll see in our treasury report tonight at the meeting, and hopefully you all come to that, but we'll see in our treasury report tonight that there's a need for finance and then beyond the need becomes I think the responsibility one of the areas of course is in mission giving. Now, um, it wouldn't do a lot of good if everybody designated their funds to missions and then we can't heat the church and put the lights on. The first mission field is your local church. The first missionary is our pastor. Then it expands out from there. But God has so richly blessed us as Americans, and I think in this area, that every one of us could probably go home and say, you know what, there's really something we could do without here, and better utilize that money and be generous with it for the Lord's work. God's blessed us with it. We should return it to Him as much as we can. Then the one who leads with zeal, I think that's specifically talking to the pastor of the church. Uh, He is the leader of the assembly. And uh, should be viewed that way. And the one who acts of, of mercy with cheerfulness. Um, cheerfully. Sensitive to others' needs. And, uh, and there's always a lot of You get to be 150 people, there's always needs out there. Well, the one thing is, if you have a real need and don't share it, then it's hard for people to know it. So there's, that, that comes under the title of pride. And, and, and there's no gift of pride, Okay. So we should be willing to share our needs. Wednesday night church meetings in America are becoming a thing of the past. Why? Lack of attendance. Um, is that because there's a lack of need? No. And I think the fellowship and binding together in prayer time is as important as anything in the church. That meeting should be attended because. There's a lot of times where we're going to find out the needs of the people and how we can better satisfy them and, uh, and, uh, and meet the needs of people in our midst. And then we're going to finish up here real quickly because the rest of this is really kind of repetitive, but it marks the marks of the true Christian, your Bibles might say. But I think we're looking at here is action words. Read through them with me. Our church uh, mission is what? The love for God and others the love for people and we we need we need to carry that out and I think that's prescriptive here I'm gonna read John uh, uh, chapter 13 real quick here verses 34 and 35 and Jesus is speaking here he says a new commandment I give to you John uh, 13 34 and 35 that you love one another just as I have loved you oh boy that's giving ourselves for the others if necessary, to the death. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's a proof text for who we are, as we exhibit love for one another. So let's read through these real quick and, and we're going to be done. I won't make many comments at all because we don't have time. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. That's Philadelphia. That's a familia thing. We are a family. And I've always, I told my kids this as they dispersed and went. The church is going to be your greatest and best family. Because families tend to, to, to part ways. Maybe some aren't saved. So there's not the fellowship there in our physical families. But the church family is the most important family. He's saying here, love one another with that same affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Honor to each other. Do not be slothful in zeal, Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. That's a tough one. At At least it is for me. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Like I said, you're going to see that there's a lot of repetition here with what we just had. It's just kind of fleshing it out a little bit more. Bless those who persecute you. Now, some people look at verse 14 and say that's going to the world. Others say that's still part of the church. To me, it can kind of fit both ways. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but, big word, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. We sin in thought, word, and deed. Thought, word, and deed. It starts with thoughts. And then those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. So it goes with words and then deeds. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I think that's causing shame, bringing him to a place of shame. And do not be overco- Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the thing here is this. Be certain to understand what God has done for us as recorded in those first 11 chapters. Then this should be an outworking in our daily lives. That should be a part of our life. Any closing thoughts? Yes, Flora. Depends on how you take that word. The, the word prophecy, I think, has become kind of the evil stepchild sometimes. So we don't like to use it because it opens up those doors. And uh, we, we as uh, Bible-believing Christians would detest that type of thing because it's, it's just it, it's totally improper. But I see prophecy there as both foretelling and foretelling. We shouldn't be foretelling anything. None of us know the day. Not even Jesus Christ knows the day is going to be sent back. God only, the Father only knows that. And uh, when He comes in glory in the clouds to rapture us out of here, uh, we'll know. We'll know the time. We'll know the season. We can see the preemptive things that are coming, that we say are probably preemptive to that that uh, happening. But we don't know that, so we shouldn't be forth, uh, We shouldn't be foretelling. Foretelling, if if that's accurate there, and I could be swayed either way, if that's accurate that we can foretell, then that's that's foretelling the revealed truth, which is primarily the pastor's place. But uh, so you weren't you weren't wrong, yes. Yes. Well, yeah. There's truth to that, but you know, when Pastor preached through, I think it was Matthew, he talked to that subject because if you look, at, if you look in Matthew, a lot of those things are normal happenings in the world. They always have been from the beginning of time. There's wars, there's rumors of wars, there's all these things that go on. Those were not necessarily keys to the end. They were natural happenings. They, they shouldn't surprise us. The end is going to be a surprise for all of us. It's going to come as a surprise. You know, every generation of Christians has spotted things in the world that, oh, the end is near. Well, it's 2,000 years later and we're still here. Does that mean, mean we ignore everything? No. But to say that what's happening in Israel right now, oh boy, now we're really close. We're no closer than God has us to be. We don't know that. Pardon? Well, we should live like it's close at hand, but we don't know the date or the time. We don't know that. Yeah, but if you go back and read that scripture, and Pastor spoke to that, so maybe talk to him. Um, a lot of those things are normal happenings that we see in the world and have seen in the world from the beginning of time. So we don't want to get caught up in every time there's a battle someplace that, oh, Jesus is coming. We know he's coming, we don't know when. We have to close there. Thank you.